Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, Episode 5. On this week's episode, I speak with Professor Andrew Granville, Canadian Research Chair in Number Theory at the University of Montreal. We discuss what pretentiousness means mathematically, the importance of enjoying doing mathematics, and exactly how you can use Zaphod Bibelbrox in a proof. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest today is Professor Andrew Granville, uh, the Canadian Research Chair in Number Theory at the University of Montreal. Hello, Professor. Hello. Oh, uh, so I was hoping to just go all the way back in the beginning. You mentioned in a previous interview, I believe you were doing with the MAA, that uh, some of your childhood interest in mathematics actually happened to come from cricket statistics. Is that correct? I don't remember saying that, but perhaps a little bit. I mean, I'm interested in cricket and interested in statistics. And I'm not sure there's a direct connection, but I don't know what I said. <laughs> uh, well, I, other than perhaps that, whether or not that actually happened to have a direct correlation, what really did get you started down the path for mathematics? Well, I didn't think... Uh, a straight path, so I really only decided to go into mathematics after finishing a degree. So when I was at high school, there was all sorts of possibilities, things that I might want to do. So it's only uh, later that I realized this was probably a good career to go into. Oh, what uh, made you realize that it was the career choice that you should make? Well, it wasn't anything very... Uh, definite. It was just what I was doing. And, uh, you know, like many young people, I was in my early 20s and it seemed like a good thing to do and couldn't think of anything better to do. A bit like where my 20-year-old is today, actually. He doesn't really know what to do with his life, uh, nor did I. And uh, you start doing something and it's fun and it's going well, so you continue. And then before you know it, that becomes your career. You have spent a good part of your career looking at prime numbers. Now, there's a lot of questions within uh, prime numbers. What do you feel are some of the most important ones? Well, some of the most famous, anyway, are things like asking whether there are infinitely many twin primes, primes that differ by two, pairs of primes that differ by two. Or a much weaker question would be to show that there are always primes between any two consecutive squares. Um, we'd guess that there are primes in even shorter intervals than that, but all these things are hard to prove. So there are lots of good questions. Some of them are quite technical to state, but there are also questions that motivate one, and those are two that I just mentioned that I think are good motivations for studying primes. So what, in the end, tends to make primes such an interesting topic for uh, people who start to look at math? Well, I think they're natural. Numbers break down into prime numbers are the components that numbers are made out of. And uh, so if you want to study numbers, which is the center of mathematics, then it's obvious that you'd like to study prime numbers. And then some of the great
great mathematicians like Gauss and Riemann showed how prime numbers are connected to all sorts of interesting theories. And so when you start to explore those theories, there's a lot of interesting things come along. Uh, as, you, as you said, uh, numbers are really, I mean, the base part of mathematics. Now, uh, what do you feel is the use of, say, computation inside number theory, which is pretty much the home of pure mathematics, of theoretical mathematics? Well, I'm personally a big computer. I like to compute. It's a way to find out what's going on. Often you're looking at mathematical objects that it's hard to get a theoretical idea of. And so to, in order to get an idea of a structure, you compute some of the object and you stare at the data. And hopefully that data will lead you to a deeper understanding of the object you're looking at. So I think that the data and computation are central to a lot of mathematics, and um, I don't think there's such a great divide between pure and applied in reality. Um, if you're a mathematician, then you want to use any tools to understand things. Do you have any examples of uh, specifically where using computational methods have uh, allowed you to push forward in your research? Almost everything I do. I mean, one of the first things I do is compute. So, you know, I've been long interested in binomial coefficients and their properties, and to understand them, I computed them and factored them and then stared at the factorization and looked for patterns. So when I think about prime numbers, I sometimes compute and I look at the data and I look for patterns in the data that I see. And, you know, this is what people do. I mean, going back to Gauss, if you look at the notes that Gauss left from um, his studies of prime numbers, there were many calculations of primes and the data and trying to interpret it. Uh, speaking of binomial coefficients. I was uh, reading through one of your expository articles, and I have to say that I'm very interested in how you thought of tying in a character from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy into a method of proof. Well, that was a long time ago. Um, well, it's explained in the article that if somehow you, you're able to find the structure in the, uh, in the table of binomial coefficients, at least modulo 16, by copying a method that appears in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the way Zaphod Bibelbrox looked at his brains. The idea is that you superimpose one brain on top of the other, and then you can find out what's really there. Well, we do a similar thing in this article with um, Pascal's Triangle. I was, I was just very happy to see a mention of one of my favorite literary characters. <laughs> now, do you uh, talk a little bit about... Uh, this idea of pretentiousness in mathematics, I, and I, I understand that a lot of people think that mathematicians can be pretentious, but I know that that's not what you personally are talking about here. No. So along with a colleague called Sander Rajan, we've been developing a notion that um, there are certain objects, well, when one's trying to prove something, in, especially about prime numbers, often one comes up against an obstacle that certain objects in mathematics are trying to be something that they're not. And this seems to be what gets in the way of proving theorems that one wants to prove. So we call these objects that are trying to be something that are not pretentious. And so we develop a notion of pretentiousness. And what we've discovered is there's a lot in a word because once you identify, instead of having complicated equation to say something, we have a word it's much easier to work with. And we've proved a few things that we've been pleased with just because we really, I think, because we have this word. Now, 
when you uh, are talking about a mathematical object trying to be something that it isn't, how do you go about showing that it uh, is acting in such a way? Well, for instance, with prime numbers, we pretty from calculations we know how they are distributed. We know how many primes are of a certain type up to a certain point from calculations. But then when we try and get the theory to predict what we know from calculation, there's a possibility that it goes wrong. In other words, it should go right, but if something really weird happened, then it would go wrong. Something weird that we can't we can't say is false. And when we examine this weird thing, that's where we get into the notion of pretentiousness. The reason that if if such a counterexample were to exist to the things that we see from calculation, then some very weird thing would have to happen. And that's a pretentious thing. Are you working, uh, other than dealing with this pretentious topic, is there uh, another area of research that you are currently doing? Well, that's a very broad area because we're looking for pretentiousness in all sorts of different problems. But So, for instance, it, it's about sequences and arithmetic progressions. It's also about generalizations of things like the Goldbach conjecture that we're looking at. And uh, so that's a couple of things that I'm looking at at the moment. I'm also, another project I've been working on recently is to understand the running time of algorithms. So for instance, factoring a number to understand better how fast computers factor a number. So that's two, two of the major projects I've been working on at the moment. Uh, in uh, the lecture that you gave that had been online at the MAA site, you were talking about uh, new uh, breakthroughs in prime number factoring. Uh, what is the current uh, best runtime for number factoring now? Well, um, in terms of factoring, there hasn't been a vast amount of change for a long time, actually. That if you have a number with um, x digits long, then it takes about exponential x to the one-third steps to factor it, which is slow which means that people can compute, I would guess, something like 130, 140 digits on a big computer nowadays. And um, who knows what people at the NSA can do. But um, there's certainly a limit with the method. The big breakthroughs actually come with determining whether or not a given number is a prime number. And that can be done very rapidly. So one can take numbers that are 10,000 digits long and rapidly determine whether or not they're prime. What has the increase in speed for primality testing meant for someone who's working inside of prime numbers? Not a lot. It's a theoretical, it's a beautiful theoretical advance. In practice, we already know how to do these things fast. It's just that the methods we had that were fast, we couldn't prove were as fast as we thought they were. So in mathematics, we always have this issue of proof. You may know something's true in your gut. You may have an algorithm that works. But you still don't, you still haven't proved that it's right. So we also want to be able to prove things. You are listening to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's episode is Andrew Granville. Now, before we get back to the interview, I just want to let everyone know that Strongly Connected Components has a new home on the internet at acmescience.com, where you can find links to more information about our guests, articles about various interesting scientific and mathematical topics that I believe that you will like, as well as information about our other podcast that tackles the lighter side of mathematics, combinations, and permutations. We also now have a forum where you can discuss our shows and mathematical ideas, as well as, you know, pretty much 
anything that you wish. So make sure to go visit acmescience.com. And now, back to the interview. Now, you were, of, of course, I'm sure most people are able to tell from your accent, originally from England, and you were doing your graduate work over there, and then uh, you read a book by the person who is then going to become your grad advisor over in Canada. And I was uh, wondering how you came to the decision just from reading a person's book that that was the person that you wanted to study under. Well, as I said, at at that age, I was fairly undecided about what I wanted to do with my life. And I must say, I was a student at Cambridge, and I found that the professors there were not very pleasant and that they were very much looked at research only in a competitive sense. They wanted to do the best. And for me, I wanted to enjoy what I was doing if I was going to become a professor and spend my life doing this. So when I read Paolo Ribbenboim's book, which was called 13 Lectures on Fermat's Theorem, what impressed me as much as the mathematics was the joy he took in discussing it. So it struck me that if I was going to take this up as a profession, I should go and try and work with somebody who seemed to enjoy themselves. So I left Cambridge and went to a university I'd never heard of before, called Queen's University in Kingston, and went to work with Paolo Ribbenboim, who indeed turned out to be delightful and a wonderful person to work for and somebody who found a lot of joy in his mathematics, which is, I think, the way you have to do it. So uh, then you come down uh, more on the side of just working on problems because they bring you enjoyment, because they're what you want to work on instead of, say, focusing on you know the big problems, the ream NP versus NP and so forth. Yeah. I mean, you know, you may get to a point where all you find fun is to work on the Riemann hypothesis, and that's fine. I think you also, you have to keep sensible goals in sight. I mean, at the end of a day or the end of a year, you want to produce something. So if you're only working on impossible conundrums, you're unlikely to produce much over, over a year or over five years. So I think it's good for people to work on a variety of things, maybe some that are ambitious and some that are less ambitious. Certainly that's what I advise my students. So uh, then when you're... Uh, worrying about, say, academic performance when you're in the academic community and you always it's publish or perish. And uh, do you feel that your performance can actually be uh, decreased if you're just working on these big problems? I mean, not, not the unsolvable big problems, but just big problems versus problems that you enjoy. Do you feel that you'd uh, better be able to finish and actually publish work if you're working on problems that you enjoy? Well, you know, you can enjoy a big problem, so... Certainly, certainly it's more of a risk to work on very, very difficult problems because if at the end of five or ten years you've got nothing to show for it, then people might start asking questions, are you actually doing anything useful at all? I mean, there's a lot of people who fool themselves. There's a lot of people who do work on the big problems. And sometimes people have said to me, oh, let me tell you about my big idea. And I listen to it and I think, oh, my God, you're really wasting your time. And sometimes you think, wow, that's an interesting idea. But... You know, there is a danger that you can isolate yourself, that you're not really in the flow of what's going on. That you're, you know, if you publish regularly, then other people read your stuff, and your and your work is exposed to the thoughts of others. So it gets critiqued, often not very nicely, but that is good for you because it allows you to react to the criticism and to think about what that other person says, and and maybe their viewpoint is more valid than your viewpoint. So you need to change. 
I'm taking from that that you have a you have the feeling that it's staying active within the community of mathematicians is a very important thing if you want to make sure that you can continue doing your work at a high level? Well, it's not true for everybody. It's true for me. Certainly Andrew Wiles hid himself for seven years when he proved Fermat's last theorem. But he was already incredibly accomplished and had done incredible things before, maybe not so popular things. And he had the confidence and knowledge and ability, but still, I remember people were asking questions. Oh, I haven't seen a paper by Wiles for five years. I wonder if he's just given up math. You know, he had a couple of kids about that time, and, and oh, yeah, I knew people who, who thought that maybe he wasn't really working. Well, it turned out they were wrong, and he was working. And, and in 94, came out with the proof of Hermes' theorem. But um, questions were raised just because he'd not been in the public eye for a long time. So there are a lot of people who were out of the public eye for a long time, probably working on something big. And often they never resurface, and then people, you know, the world just passes them by. They don't get research grants anymore. Nobody invites them to conferences. They don't really hear what other people are doing that might be useful to them. So you have to be fairly special to keep out of the public eye and succeed like Wiles did. And it's not for everybody. I was uh, wondering, a lot of people who, would, who will be listening to this uh, have probably at some point either uh, read a journal or have published in one. I've noticed that you uh, work on quite a few editorial boards for journals. I was wondering what is really entailed in the work of being on an editorial board? Well, the key thing really is when you receive an article is to be able to identify a good referee to review the article. So typically, I didn't do it myself, but identify somebody who would be able to give a good professional opinion on whether the article is interesting and correct and would enjoy doing so. Obviously, you don't want to send somebody who just thinks it's work. You want to send somebody who thinks it'll be good for them to do, that they'll enjoy doing it. So, for instance, I actually, as a referee, I received a, an article yesterday from a journal. And since I received it, I've been reading it because the editor picked me perfectly. It's exactly what I wanted to read about. Do you find so, that it uh, can be a bit of a tough job to find the correct referee at times for uh, certain articles? Sure. Sure, often it isn't, but, but sometimes there's, there's, it's difficult in terms of subject matter. Sometimes it's difficult because of the personality of the person who wrote the article. Some people really don't like them, so they don't want to even bother to read their stuff. So that can be difficult. Once again, we come back to uh, taking part in the mathematical com community in a good way. Right, right. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody holds against somebody if they've been out of the public eye, but there are a few people who aren't very popular, so... You'll find one finds people writing back saying, "No, I don't really want to take the time to do this." Yeah, uh, there's one last question I was hoping to ask you today, and that is, I was wondering how the uh, mathematical detective script that you and your sister were working on, uh, how that is going. Well, it's funny you ask. It's going to be performed in about six weeks' time in Princeton, um, so by by a professional cast and. Uh, well, anyway, we'll see how that goes. It may well appear in book form in the next year. We're just negotiating a book contract. So it's going forward. Well, congratulations with that. Thanks very much. Oh, and also, actually, it looks like somebody's going to make a documentary of the making of the play. And so that may well be available on the web in the next year or two. So it's all quite exciting, but not nothing's really... Except that we're having a performance in mid-December. I don't know all the details of what will be publicly available at this point in time. Okay, well, we will all look forward to whatever we can get, I'm sure. Okay.
Okay, thank you very much. Sure, good to speak to you. Thanks very much. Well, that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. As always, I want to thank Hard and Firm for our theme music, which is the song Pie. And the interstitial and outro music on this week's episode is from SP12. The song is entitled Shadows 192. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we have a new website, acmescience.com, and with a new website comes a new way of contacting us. So if you want to get a hold of me, my personal email account, that's right, I'm giving you my actual personal email account now, is samuel at acmescience.com. So if you have any feedback, any suggestions, or you just want to say hi, please email me. I would love to hear from you. Strongly Connected Components is, as always, licensed under an attribution share like Creative Commons license. And I want to thank all of you for listening, and I hope to hear from you on the forum or in my email sometime soon. 